Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Simba Gill. Simba is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Avello Biosciences. Avello is part of a new generation of biotech companies seeking to make medicines based on the new understanding of the microbiome. The science here is fascinating, and there are a lot of different ideas out there for how drug developers can leverage this knowledge to make therapies that work unlike the standard small molecules or recombinant protein therapies. Avello's drug candidates are biologics designed to be taken orally, to act directly in the small intestine, and to have therapeutic effects throughout the body. In this conversation, Simba describes what the key scientific discoveries were that inspired the founding of Avello, and how the company created a strategy for therapeutic interventions, which is no obvious thing generally in this field of microbiome therapeutics. Avello is in the clinical development stages now, with drug candidates for chronic inflammatory diseases like psoriasis, and also for cancer. Based on some of its clinical observations to date, there's even a rationale for testing one of its candidates for COVID-19. Clinical studies there are ongoing. Simba grew up in the UK and got his scientific training as an immunologist. He is a global citizen and has been around the block a time or two in his biotech career, constantly gravitating to big new ideas where the biology risk was high and entrepreneurs had to be a little extra comfortable with the unknown. Simba also thinks a lot about the intersection between science and society. Much of his drive here at the company is about creating therapies that can help the largest number of people possible around the world. So part of this conversation is naturally about creating therapies that can be priced in a way to achieve that humanitarian goal. And as you'll also hear from the start, Simba and I have a history. He was part of the 27-member Kilimanjaro Klein to Fight Cancer team in 2019, in which we raised money together for the Fred Hutch. He and I got to know each other a bit better and discovered our shared interest in these links between science and society on that trip to climb the highest mountain in Africa. He's someone with a big heart, and he cares about people who are less fortunate. Now, real quick before we get started. Do you enjoy the Long Run Podcast? Maybe you're trying to raise awareness of your company, your organization, or your services with a high-powered crowd of entrepreneurs and venture investors? Tell me about your company and why it could be a good fit as a sponsor of this show. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. Now please join me and Simba Gill on the long run. Simba Gill, welcome to the long run. Thanks very much, Luke. Great to join you. So Simba, b- before we get started, I thought I would share with the listeners a funny little anecdote uh, that you and I shared. Um, as some listeners may know, you were a part of the Kilimanjaro Klein to Fight Cancer campaign, the, the expedition that I ran back in 2019. And uh, I remember this well. At, when we were just getting started, we're at the Morangu Gate and it's this forested area. Uh, we had just, you know, had a little picnic lunch and we had just gotten started. We were just introducing ourselves, this big group of 27 climbers from the U.S. And we're meeting all of the Tanzanian guides, you know, going around and saying our first names and waving at the at the guides. And about halfway through, they come to you and you said your name is Simba. And uh, I think, you know, there was just a lot of smiling and nodding at first. and But then somebody actually realized, like, no, his name is actually Simba, <laughs> which is African for, for uh, lion. <laughs> and and it was just like the, there were lots of like smiles and nods and like uh, laughs like, oh, Simba. And it was just like such a great, uh, funny icebreaker. Um, I wonder how, what do you remember of that? Uh, well, actually, first of all, Luke, thanks very much for organizing the trip. It was absolutely fantastic, obviously, for a really important cause in terms of the great work that Fred Hutch is doing in the cancer world, but it was just a remarkable group of people and uh, just really wonderful trip. I, I don't know if you remember, Luke, but I was very concerned at the number of people who turned up. Uh, so I had originally thought we'd be about 10 or 12 people. And uh, I'm not a big fan of big groups of human beings. And the idea of being uh, essentially trapped with about 30 people who are all super high achievers, all alpha characters and personalities filled me with dread, but it turned out to be 
uh, exactly the opposite. Just really, really wonderful group of people. And so thanks very much, Luke. And it was great for me to go back to Tanzania. It's where I was originally born. Originally born, it's where I was born. I was born in uh, in the highlands of Tanzania in a place called Mbeya, hence my name. Um, so, yeah, it was fantastic from that perspective for me as well. Yeah, yeah. I know that that was um, a special trip for you, being born in Tanzania and, and telling me early on that, that uh, climbing Kilimanjaro was something that you always wanted to do. Um, but maybe, maybe for, uh, for everyone else, can you um, tell us a little bit about uh, where your life story begins? Your, your, your parents um, are from India, but they came to Tanzania and that's where you, you got started. How, uh, can you set the scene for us? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm big on nature, nurture. So obviously life begins with one's parents. And as you said, my mother and father, both Indian originally, my mother's actually from Kashmir in the Himalayas. Uh, so where there are real mountains, Luke, as you know well, having climbed Everest. Um, and my father's from Punjab, but uh, they met at medical school in India. Uh, my father's East African Indian, so he was brought up in Tanzania. And after medical school, uh, they moved uh, to Tanzania, which is where I was born. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm very lucky, Luke, actually. My parents are wonderful people and uh, had a fantastic upbringing. They moved uh, throughout my childhood. So they obviously started in Tanzania, moved to India for a bit, uh, then moved to the UK. Uh, you can tell from my accent, I was educated in the UK and spent most of my life there. Uh, and then when I was about 12, they moved to the Middle East. Uh, I went to a boarding school uh, in England, uh, but uh, they're still in the Middle East uh, many decades later. So uh, my childhood and my upbringing is extremely international and, and very global. And uh, yeah, I'm very thankful to my parents. They're just wonderful people who've given me amazing exposure to life, actually. When did you go to the UK? At what age? I, I took the bold decision to go to the UK when I was about four years old. <laughs> right. Okay. So this is where all of your, your schooling primarily occurs. Uh, what, what kind of school uh, for elementary or middle did you go, attend? So I went to, as I said, I went to a boarding school from the age of 12 onwards. Uh, so uh, classic English, what we call public school, which means private in, in, uh, in English, English. Um, so, uh, so classic, uh, fairly elite uh, English private school. Uh, from 12 to 18, and then I did my undergraduate and my PhD at uh, King's College in London. But now your parents, both parents were doctors, is that right? And 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 what what kind of they, they came to, uh, to practice? What kind of medicine? And and what 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 kind of town were they in? Uh, so my mother is an obstetrician and gynecologist, uh, and my father is a old-fashioned general surgeon, so he can operate on anything in your body, basically. Uh, having said that, they are both in their mid to late 80s. So they retired at the age of about 80, both of them. So they practiced medicine for almost 60 years, quite remarkably. But now uh, this was outside London? Yes. When they were in England, they mainly practiced in the north of England, uh, in Durham and Newcastle, which is right on the border with Scotland. Well, that's pretty pretty far north. So the, what, what kind uh, was this a small town that you were in? Uh, no, Newcastle's the major city in the northeast of England, actually. Um, uh, Durham's a university city just next to Newcastle. So it was really the main northeastern city in, in the UK. Okay. So could you, what was the schooling like? You said it was an elite uh, kind of school that you went to. Yeah, I don't know if you know much about it, uh, English uh, traditional boarding school system. There's a great book you might have read, uh, Luke, uh, called Tom Brown's School Days. So English boarding schools were set up in the days of colonialism to, to train uh, English elite for leadership in places of hardship. Uh, and so they're a strange mixture of being very elite, um, but deliberately quite harsh places. So I got the tail end of that world. Um, but, uh, you know, great education, very much, you'll appreciate this, Luke. So very much my school, for example, was famous for its climbing expeditions and its outdoor activities. Um, but the idea was to form well-rounded human beings who could run the empire. That is really the origin of, of British private school systems. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, wonderful from that perspective. Uh, I went to boarding school at the age of 12, um, and my parents lived thousands of miles away. So, you know, very uh, influential in the way I think about the world and I think about life, actually, Luca. Um, having 
essentially had to fly on my own at the age of 12 and be thousands of miles away from my parent. I, parents. I uh, often look at other people and wonder why they struggle in, with life, actually. So it was great in terms of early challenges and uh, the ability to become very independent early in life. You said harsh. Uh, how so? So I, I was very lucky, actually. I didn't really take any of the, have to deal with any of the um, the historically negative side of, of English boarding schools. But historically, you know, there are systems in in England that call fagging in the English boarding school system where you, as a young boy, have to essentially go through various forms of minor torture, actually, um, as part of your hazing ritual, essentially. Um, I didn't have to go through that, but many of my friends and uh, contemporaries did. Um, so, uh, for example, actually, I'll give you an example, Luke, fun, fun thing that uh, I had to do. So I was locked in a fridge uh, and rolled down a hill in a fridge um, uh, as part of sort of my hazing ritual at the age of 12. But that was very minor compared to some other things that other people had to go through. <laughs> Come up with a few bumps and bruises, I guess. Okay, so um, what kind of student were you? Were you like head of the class early on or not so much? Yes and no. So uh, I did uh, an S1 uh, uh exam uh, um s stands for special in the old english educational system uh, but i did that in biology and it's really reserved for the sort of best students in the country uh i was one of the top people in the country in biology uh, at the age of 18 with my s1 but uh, i was pretty average actually in terms of my standard exams uh, i found uh sort of classic education quite boring actually and uninspiring so i did fine uh, i wasn't brilliant um but did okay uh and also, always enjoyed breadth in my life, Luke. So I uh, was very active in a number of sports and, and various other things. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so at, at school, high school, uh, that was kind of my background and then uh, started to flourish as I moved towards my PhD, really. How did you first get interested in biology? It sounds like this happened, uh, you know, in your teens. Yeah, it happened very early, actually. Um, actually, I always loved biology um, since I was a very young child, actually. Um, and that then got amplified. My high school actually uh, quite famously includes Richard Dawkins as one of its alumni. Uh, and Richard Dawkins, you probably know, wrote The Selfish Gene and, and till today is really a big uh, educator on the importance of genetics and and so on. So uh, just because Dawkins had gone to my high school, the whole central area of genetics was uh, a big theme in my school. Uh, and that uh, helped uh, essentially fuel my, my interest uh, in biology um, and genetics, actually. So started there. Obviously, my parents uh, as clinicians uh, understood medicine. Uh, they were very good in terms of encouraging me to to explore and uh and pursue my own interest in whatever I was interested in. So through my parents, I met a lot of immunologists, a lot of geneticists very early on in life in my teens. And to get the dates on this right, I mean, Dawkins, the famous book, The Selfish Gene, that was like mid-70s, right? So this would have been shortly before you had, it had been published and, and, and a big sensation even then, right? Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. So, so those dates are exactly right, yeah. So uh, uh, I was at high school in uh, essentially the the mid to late 1970s and early 1980s. So Dawkins' book was already out um, and the whole concept of the selfish gene was starting to become very much popularized. Okay, so you start uh, on this path to um, study science. Uh, how do you end up at uh, King's College London? So uh, actually through that period in my teens, um, the, the Modern era, as it was in those days of genetics and immunology, was just starting. And you know, I was lucky enough to be exposed to some brilliant people uh, through my education, through uh, my parents' introductions, who basically gave me great advice, which was that the future of medicine was going to be very much linked to an exploding area of genetics, molecular biology, and immunology. And I had a conversation, series of conversations with my parents and others about how to have maximum impact on humanity. Um, you know, I cu come from a classic Indian family and that, uh, there are many, many doctors in our family. And the easy path was to become a clinician. But the conversations that my parents and I had were around how to have maximum impact, as I said. And it was very clear that discovering 
new medicines and science underpinning breadth of, of, of medicine was a way to have bigger impact than most clinicians will have. Uh, and I love science and biology. So given that, um, the question was wh- which area of science to go into. And immunology was just beginning as a, as a serious discipline. There was one uh, university in the whole of, uh, actually the whole of Europe, which offered an immunology undergraduate course. So I decided to do that. Um, it was brand- you just stop right there, Simba. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, considering where immunology is today, I mean, it was barely its own branch of science when you were coming up. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it is absolutely amazing. To put it in context, there were 16 of us, Luke, in the whole of Europe studying immunology as an undergraduate uh, subject. And the textbook, which was the classic textbook of its time, was about 250 pages long. That was it. The rest of it was biochemistry and physiology. It's written by a guy called Ivan Reut. Um, and by the time I finished three years later, my undergraduate, the, that was a 20 volume series of textbooks. And obviously it's just exploded since then. Yeah. So it is incredible when I look back on it. So you get fascinated with immunology early on as an undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I did my undergraduate in. Yeah. And, and then where did you go next? So at that time or through that time, biotech was starting as an industry uh, so Genentech in particular had had really uh, kicked off under Bob Swanson's leadership. And as a as an undergraduate, I was reading about the, this uh, exciting new industry in the U.S. And uh, the U.K., I like to remind my American friends and colleagues, uh, actually uh, is the foundation of all biotech, having discovered the structure of DNA, having discovered uh, how to make monoclonal antibodies, both Nobel Prizes awarded to scientists based in the U.K., Kohler and Milstein, 1975. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, but the UK had completely missed uh, the opportunity to build uh, an industry out of that. So uh, it was playing catch up uh, at around the time I was graduating and had just started the first UK biotech company, uh, which was called Celtech. And Celtech had the rights to much of what was funded by the Medical Research Council, uh, the UK's equivalent of the NIH, um, particularly in the antibody and biologics world. So, uh, so there were a series of intellectual property uh, and other uh, affiliations that they had rights to. Um, strong collaboration with uh, Mike Neuberger and Greg Winters Labs as well. Um, also, uh, you probably know Greg Winters gone on to win the Nobel Prize as well. So, uh, so Celtic was set up to essentially uh, build on the UK's scientific leadership in what was the origins of biotech, so biologics and antibodies, uh, and take advantage of the science coming out of primarily UK Cambridge um, and build a biotech company around that. So there was a a government-sponsored program to support PhDs uh, in the fledgling biotech industry. I was lucky enough to win one of those scholarships and spent most of my time at Celtech, actually, working uh, with uh, actually, my current chief scientific officer, who I've known for many decades, a guy called Mark Bodmer, who led much of the early antibody work in the world, actually. So you were doing your graduate school work and also sort of um, interning at Celtech in a way, like getting 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 some experience with, OK, here's what academia does and here's what industry does. Yes, absolutely. So my PhD program was focused on developing uh, one of the early anti-cancer antibodies that was essentially in those days, a chimeric antibody, part mouse, part human, uh, targeting uh, the CEA antigen, the carcinoembryonic antigen. So that uh, was one of the first uh, programs to go into the clinic, actually, as an anti-cancer antibody. Uh, this is sort of early 1980s, basically. Um, and Celtech, you might know, Luke, was, uh, you know, together with Genentech and Hypertech, one of the three really original antibody companies. So just an amazing opportunity. And uh, Mark, you know, is my chief scientific officer now, is one of the most brilliant people I know in the industry. Uh, so fantastic place to, to start uh, my career. Okay, so you, get, so you got some early positive exposure um, and, and people in your circle, your advisors, I mean, parents, I mean, they all thought, you know, this is a, a reasonable way for you to go to... Um, apply science, go to work in biotech? Yes, in general. I, I think, uh, you know, in those days, biotech was very much a dream and very few people believed in it. Something I talk quite a lot about, having been in antibodies in the very, very beginning. Uh, the vast majority of people in pharma, the vast majority of people in uh, academia didn't believe antibodies would become drugs. Uh, it always makes me smile in a world where uh 
all big pharma companies have now embraced antibodies. It took them many decades to get there, Luke. Uh, so most people did not believe that antibodies could become drugs. Most people 20 didn't. years, actually, from discovery all the way to uh, Herceptin and Rituxan. Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, when Herceptin and Rituxan got launched, most pharma was still slow, right? So, uh, so yes, in terms of the people closest to me and the advisors closest to me, uh, they, they all thought I was on a, on a great trajectory. But no, in terms of most of the world thought I was mad uh, because Biotech <laughs> didn't really exist and neither did antibodies. But you um, you locked into this with a, with a fair degree of conviction. I mean, you got an MBA uh, at some point. Um, what was that experience like? Uh, fantastic as well. Yes. So actually, through my experience at Celtech, I realized that the challenge that uh, biotech was going to have was essentially being able to have people who spoke multiple languages in the literal as well as metaphorical sense. So you know, building a great biotech company requires multiple different scientific disciplines to come together work with translational medicine and to work with business people around how to finance, how to develop, how to build a company. And it was very clear to me very early on. It's still, I'd say, uh, the major challenge of building a great biotech company is how do you get all of those disparate disciplines to work together? And very few people speak all of the languages which are required. Um, So I didn't know anything about business. Uh, In those days, I didn't really uh, think of business as a, a as a particularly interesting place to be, but it became very clear to me from my Celtech experience that building a biotech company required that translational skill. Uh, and so I decided I wanted to learn about the business world. And the fastest way to do that was to do an MBA. So I went to INSEAD in France, uh, just outside Paris to do my MBA. Uh, great experience. I'm still very closely involved with, uh, with the business school. Uh, in my view, it is easily the best business school in the world. Uh, mainly because it's very international. It's very, very global in its thinking. And actually, its current theme is business as a force for good, uh, which I think is also something incredibly important. So great experience for me. I learned an enormous amount um, from that. And so you've got your your scientific training uh, in your, you know, in your discipline. You've got enough awareness that, you know, you don't know it all and that it does take a team to do this kind of work. So you get, you layer in the business piece. Uh, and then, then you come to America. What brought you to the U S actually I came to America via Germany. Um, so just briefly after my MBA, I wanted to go to America and go to the West coast to join a biotech company. And biotech was still quite young in those days. And, uh, the response I got was you may have a PhD, you have an MBA, but you've never actually done anything, which was actually strictly speaking, correct. Uh, so, uh, American biotech, West Coast Biotech uh, didn't want me, Luke. Um, there weren't many West Coast Biotech companies, probably 20 max, I'd say, in those days. Um, but uh, I definitely wanted to work in the biotech field. So I was very lucky to actually get a, a position at Boehringer Mannheim, uh, which was at the time Europe's largest privately held pharmaceutical company, but it had been very early in terms of investing in biotech. And so worked in Boehringer Mannheim for several years. Um, amongst other things, I led uh, global marketing for their version of EPO, which became the world's biggest selling pharmaceutical product, uh, their version and Amgen's version together, uh, was very lucky to work uh, under Max Link's leadership. So Max was one of the early people in big pharma to recognize the importance of biotech and did a lot of deals uh, in the early days of antibodies, genomics, gene therapy, cell therapy uh, under Max Max's leadership. And then I moved to the States, basically. And Okay, so how many years were you there at Boehringer? So a good way to kind of uh, further cut your teeth on on other other aspects of the biotech industry that you know maybe you didn't pick up at Celtech. Okay, so you come to the U.S. then. Yes. Yep. So then I came to the U.S. Um, and essentially managed to realize the dream of getting to the to the West Coast, um, and uh, was lucky enough to be offered a job as head of corporate strategy and corporate development at Systemics, which was the first stem cell therapy company in the world, Irv Weissman's company, run by a remarkable woman called Linda Sontag. And uh, you know nobody had really done anything in the world of stem cells. Irv discovered the hematopoietic stem cell and came up with actually the ideas at the origins of everything that we do in cell therapy and stem cell therapy, including CAR-T, et cetera. Uh, so uh, fantastic experience again. Um, 
best and the brightest scientifically at that organization. And really, it did absolutely lead the way in a lot of what has become cell therapy. Uh, sold that to Novartis and then uh, spent uh, 15 years actually on the West Coast in leadership and founding positions in platform companies. So directed evolution, founded and built Maxgen with Alex Zaffaroni and a remarkable team there. I uh, was very involved in the early days of gene therapy as well. Yeah, so here you're showing a lot of inclination toward platforms, new modalities. What do you think it was about those that, that really attracted you? So I, I've been accused many times in my life of being a dreamer, Luke, and, and I am. Um, you know, I'm a dreamer and, uh, and I am someone who believes that the world can be fundamentally improved uh, in dramatic ways. Um, one of the ways that can be fundamentally improved is through uh, great platforms. And there is a huge role for incremental science and incremental product uh, development. And that is actually what the bulk of biotech today and, and certainly uh, almost all pharmaceutical companies are focused on. Um, and again, that's extremely important, but it's not what excites me personally. I'm much more excited about doing a fundamental platform biology, which offers the potential as you see with antibodies, as you see with cell therapy, as you see with gene therapy, to do things that go dramatically beyond what is currently possible. Um, so that's why I love that world. So you, you, you like getting a little further out on the edge, uh, not necessarily, you know, a tweak here or a tweak there. Um, okay, so... I want to fast forward now to the the present, really. Um, Avello Biosciences. Uh, this was kind of a, a twinkle in the eye at Flagship about five years ago. Can, how, how did that come together for you? How did you had you been in touch with these guys for a while, or, or like tell me about how you got involved? Actually, about six years ago, uh, I took uh, about six months off to really think about to the point on platform where the next big leaps forward in, in science and medicine were going to come from and where the next major platform areas were, were going to be. And in that period, you know, obviously I read a lot. I talked to a lot of people um, and came up with five areas, which I think will transform medicine. The bigger challenge I had was who to work with. And having been in biotech essentially my whole adult life, uh, I've been through the ups and downs. And as you know, Luke, platforms are either in vogue or out of vogue at any given time. Um, but Nubar is someone I've known uh, for decades, actually, Nubar Afayan, the head of flagship. And he's really, in my mind, the one person, actually, who's always believed in the potential of platforms to transform medicine and always stuck through it, through the good times and through the bad times. Um, within flagship, there's another remarkable guy, David Berry who's uh, founded a number of platform companies. He's got a very exciting one that uh, he's now leading. Um, but uh, David Berry and Nubar uh, and myself started talking about uh, doing something together. So I joined Flagship a little over five years ago to find the next big thing. Uh, David Berry and Nubar had started much of what has gone on to become important in the world of the gut and microbes in the gut. And they were exploring ideas that go beyond the type of thing that Ceres has done. So looking at uh, ecosystem biology, so changing the microbial ecosystem in the colon, which Ceres has gone on to demonstrate has real utility, for example, in treating C. diff. Uh, they've had very recent, remarkably positive phase three d uh, data. Uh, but beyond that, there was something else going on. And the way flagship works is to explore um, previously unexplored areas. So it was very much an exploration of what else was going on in the gut beyond the microbial ecosystem in the colon. So joined David Berry really to explore that. And uh, yes, much more has happened. And we've learned a lot since those early days. If you like listening to the Long Run Podcast, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. This is where you'll gain a deep contextual understanding of biotech from my writing and from great contributing writers like Otello Stampaccia, Alex Harding, Ruth Etzioni, David Shaywitz, and more. Read this site and you will get ahead of the curve. It's a bargain at $169 a year for an individual to subscribe. Discounts are available for groups with multiple readers. Go to timbermanreport.com slash subscribe to show your support today. 
And are you a fan of the Long Run Podcast? Trying to raise awareness of your company, your organization, or your services with a high-powered crowd of entrepreneurs and venture investors who listen to this show? Ask me about sponsorship opportunities. For more information, Luke at TimmermanReport.com. Well, let's zoom back up at a high level here. For those not super familiar, the field of the microbiome, I mean, the term, well, it was kind of being popularized there in the middle 2010s. Uh, Cheap, fast DNA sequencing was shedding a lot of light on the diversity of the microbiome in the guts and on the skin. But I mean, but you got... um, we all have like trillions of microbes that we coexist with, uh, and the, it's unbelievably complicated how they uh, how they digest our food and and interact with our immune system, uh, maintain homeostasis most of the time, but occasionally gets uh, out of whack and leads to disease. Um, I, I think you know when you were looking at fields that would disrupt medicine. Um, what was it? A, was there a particular um, aha moment or study that you looked at where you said, I mean, was it something to do with the fecal transplants that had occurred at the time where, you know, they actually worked <laughs> uh, for, for some patients with C. diff that you said, you know, gosh, maybe maybe there's something here. Maybe there's a new way of looking at um, health and disease. So it wasn't the fecal transplants for me, uh, Luke. So uh Actually, when I started working with Nubar and David Berry, uh, essentially fecal transplants had already um, shown to have some efficacy. Series had already started to essentially go beyond that approach. What was intriguing to me was that there was something else going on beyond essentially the the series approach is based uh, upon an understanding that the microbial ecosystem in the colon, so the trillions of microbes you described, form an ecosystem. And that ecosystem needs to be healthy uh, in order for us to, to lead healthy lives. Um, if one has disease-causing bacteria such as uh, C. difficile uh, in the colon, it can be life-threatening and cause serious effects. So that was already underway. And, um, you know, I like to be uh, a pioneer versus a follower. So that wasn't interesting to me as much as it's, it's proving to be a very exciting area of medicine. What was interesting to me was that there was something else that was going on that we didn't understand. And I looked at it from two different perspectives. One is the central role of the gut. So as an immunologist, you know, we're typically taught about the central importance of the thymus, hence T cells, the central importance of bone marrow, hence B cells. But we're not taught about the central importance of the gut. And my chief scientific officer, Mark Bodmer, loves to talk about the worm. So most people don't actually realize we're all evolved from the worm. Um, So the worm turned into the small intestine and then we evolved from the small intestine. So our origins are worm-like and they come from the small intestine. And once one understands that, you start to see why... Myself, Mark Bodmer, my chief scientific officer, got very excited about what has become Evelo. Um, We have not, as biologists, until now appreciated the centrality of the small intestine in who we are. So that was one aspect of things. There was something going on in the small intestine, distinct to the colon and the rest of the gut, that was central to literally who we are as human beings from an evolutionary perspective. The second thing, to your point on microbes was uh, the central importance of the holobiont. Uh, So I talk all the time about how Darwin got it wrong um, to be deliberately provocative. But, you know, most of us are brought up on the idea that species evolve as single entities. It's now very, very clear that all life is a holobiont. So uh, it is essentially a metaspecies in which whether we're a plant or an animal, we've evolved together with the microbes that live in and on us. And uh, that is just a profound statement and profound fact. Uh, But it's literally something that goes against the way we've all been taught and the way we've we've thought about biology. And so if you put those two things together, the fact that we are holobiont as much microbe as we are human as one thing, and the fact that the small intestine is central to our evolutionary background, it became incredibly clear to me 
that there was something uh, very, very, very central that uh, could potentially transform medicine. This is very heavy stuff. You could have interesting conversations with philosophers. Were people talking about the gut-brain axis at this time, this idea that there is crosstalk, but that signals go back and forth between the, the microbial communities and, and your central nervous system and can affect your mood and, you know, mental health? Yeah. So early ideas of that becoming uh, talked about in, in the modern world of science. Having said that, Luke, you know, if you go back to the early origins of, of immunology and, and neurology, uh, we've known for certainly decades that the immune system and the neurological and the metabolic system all interact with each other. And the, the aha moment, I think, for many people was realizing that what is central to those interactions between immunology, metabolism, and neurology is the centrality of the gut. And that was uh, a realization that started to occur in, in the broad field of science, I'd say within the last decade or so. And so, yes, gut-brain axis, gut-body axis all started to become uh, terms that were, were starting to become used. But Okay, but so these are, these are big observations, like, and it's becoming more clear, as I kind of alluded to, that the, the, the tools for measurement, our ability to look at the diversity of these these uh, microbial ecosystems and, and and how they vary from one group of patients to the next, um, that's becoming a little more clear uh, in, in these years. Um, but, you know, when you look at actual interventions, I mean, there's things like the fecal transplant, which I alluded to, and then Cirrus was an early mover in microbiome therapies, which is kind of, in its first iteration, trying to sort of mimic uh, the effect of the fecal transplant with a more, you know, convenient and reasonable pill uh, has advantages over a fecal transplant. But the problem there, uh, and we've talked about this, is that there were just so many variables. Like if you look at a fecal transplant or the early you know, like, uh, colonies of put into a pill, it's, it's really hard to tease apart, well, what's actually going on there biologically or mechanistically to give you the therapeutic effect? Because there's just so many variables, so much going on. So this, like as a, as a drug developer, I mean, you got to think about, okay, um, how do you actually intervene? Yeah. So beautifully summarized, Luke. So one of the things that I've learned through decades building platform uh, biotech companies is the importance of drug development. And, uh, you know, great science and, and fascinating biology is not enough. Ultimately, our goal is obviously to develop medicines um, which have broad impact. And uh, what became really exciting for us, uh, actually comes out of the brain of Mark Bodmer, our chief scientific officer, who realized that what was going on in the small intestine is completely distinct to what's going on in the colon. So in the colon, again, there's going to be great utility there for, for a, a different approach with different applications that Ceres is really leading the way in. Um, but uh, distinct biology exists in the small intestine. And that biology is based upon the fact that we now know that there are immune and epithelial cells in the small intestine, which constantly sense the microbes, which we are constantly being exposed to and that are constantly passing through the gut. And depending on the structural patterns that those microbes display, our biology is modulated, our biology throughout the body. And that, back to your previous point, is our immune system, but it's also our neurological system and it's our metabolic system, and it's completely distinct to the microbial ecosystem in the colon. The beauty of that small intestinal biology, to your question, Luke, is that it lends itself to developing a very predictable new class of medicine. Um, so essentially our products, we realize, would simply be agents, actually, um, don't have to be microbes ultimately, but agents which harness that natural evolutionary biology in which cells in the small intestine sense the external environment and they're sensing structural patterns versus anything to do with metabolites. And depending on what is sensed, our immunology is mod modulated, our metabolism is modulated, our neurology is mod modulated. And because it's based on structural recognition, it lends itself to drug development because essentially it opens up the ability to have a single pharmacological product, which is dose dependent, which represents 
a series of structural patterns which are recognized. And as you know, Luke, that's the basis of the pharmacological industry. Something is recognized and depending upon that recognition, signals are sent throughout the body which modulate things for therapeutic utility. And so that lends itself to being able to manufacture something simply that is predictable. So you're not just taking a trillion bugs from me and giving a trillion of those bugs to you and hoping for the best. <laughs> yeah, well put, Luke. Yeah. And, and that is really, really complicated. So the beauty of what we're focused on, which is uh, what we call the small intestinal axis syntax, is that it uh, lends itself to something very simple as a new profile of medicine. You call it a monoclonal microbial. Uh, how, did you, how did you arrive at that term and, and that strategy that underpins it? So monoclonal because it's single strain. So we found that there are specific single strains of microbes, commensal microbes, so essentially microbes which exist in the human population as a species uh, and which uh, are part of a biology are non-pathogenic. Um, and at the strain level, we found specific single microbes which can essentially modulate the immune system either to resolve disease-causing inflammation or to activate innate and adaptive immunity for utility in the cancer world, in an IO world, or in the vaccine world. And the critical thing is it's single specific strains of microbes as opposed to consortium of bacteria. Um, the interesting thing is you have to go beyond the species level of specificity. So as with humans, within a species, microbes have lots of variation. You and I are both humans. We're very different, Luke. Um, the same thing happens to be true in the microbial world. So you have to find the right strain within a commensal microbial species to shift systemic biology towards, for example, an inflammation resolving state or an innate and adaptive immunity activation state. This really sounds like a needle in a haystack kind of problem. Like you're finding the one strain out of a trillion that can tip the balance between health and disease. We are looking for the for the one strain that can shift the balance. It's not a needle in a haystack for a, a, a few reasons. So one, um, our lead programs have come from two sources. Uh, one is collaboration with the leading academics in either the oncology or inflammation world who spent many years trying to find the relevant types of microbes. So we have a strong collaboration with Mayo uh, on the inflammation side, a strong collaboration uh, with the University of Chicago on the oncology side with the groups who've really spent many, many years trying to find the right microbes. And we unlicensed uh, the relevant microbial uh, intellectual property uh, from those groups. So they did spend years trying to find the relevant biology. But the other thing we've done is to realize that actually, if you look in the stool, yes, it is looking for a needle in a haystack. But some of our other more advanced programs come from human duodenal biopsies or, or from patients who have, for example, inflammatory bowel disease. And if we look in those situations, uh, we found to date certainly a higher proportion of interesting microbes and the other piece of the equation is that it's actually relatively high throughput from a screening perspective to be able to take many different microbes, for example, isolated from duodenal biopsies or from patients with inflammatory conditions and to screen those in cell-based screening systems for activity on human immune cells. So that's actually relatively high throughput for a cellular assay. So that's allowed us to find... Uh, several clinical candidates very, very rapidly. Okay, so assuming you found um, the right strain uh, to achieve some kind of biology that you're looking to achieve, um, then you need to make it into a drug. And I suppose here's where there could be some advantages. A, a single strain that you can uh, grow up in a controlled environment, make it into an oral capsule. Um, it, uh, this has some attractiveness for like cost of goods uh, and, and simplicity manufacturing. Were you thinking about this early on? Yeah, absolutely, Luke. So it, it goes to a higher order issue. So um, having been in biotech my whole adult life, uh, uh, you know, it's been a, a remarkable thing to have been a small part of in that we have, as an industry, have made a huge impact on, on patients' lives. However, uh, biotech is essentially today a luxury goods industry. So essentially modern biotech products are 
um, extremely expensive. They often have to be injected or infused. And what it's meant is we're typically dealing with two populations, either patients with very late stage, very serious disease, cancer is the obvious uh, example, or patients with very rare diseases. Uh, and those are the two areas um, where we've had tremendous impact. There are other things where Biotech's had enormous influence, hepatitis C, HIV as, as obvious examples. Uh, but in general, uh, we're treating small numbers of patients. What I've always wanted to do is to develop a new platform that had the potential to impact billions of people globally and also to impact early stages of disease. We don't do that typically with biotech. We treat late stage disease typically or, or patients with rare genetic diseases. And, you know, we've known since the advent of modern science and modern medicine that early intervention is the key from a global healthcare perspective. And so uh, I've always been very keen on finding a platform that would open up the development and commercialization and delivery of, of medicines to what will soon be 10 billion people on the planet, but also the ability to deliver medicines very early in the disease uh, process. Um, what became very clear early on as we started to understand small intestinal biology was that we had the opportunity to develop a new profile of medicine in which because of that biology in which the cells in the small intestine acted as sensing agents, we were able to deliver oral agents, the guts essentially outside the body, Luke, a lot of people don't think about it that way, but the gut's a big hole in the middle of the body. The cells are sampling the outside of the body. And uh, that means we can deliver things orally. Um, but uh, the manufacturing was dependent upon scaling manufacturing of microbes. Very easy once you have a process to scale microbes and they can be developed, manufactured on a very, very affordable basis. So we had an ability to develop something that had very low cost of goods, but we also had something that was likely to be very safe. These are naturally occurring strains of commensal microbes. There's no systemic exposure. The microbes don't actually get onto the inside of the body. They don't colonize the colon, they get cleared from the body. And so we had something which is what all drugs should be aiming to be, which is very effective, very safe, um, orally delivered, convenient, uh, but also something that could be developed and manufactured on a very affordable basis and hence opening up that ability to develop and deliver drugs to global populations and early on in the disease process. And they're presenting this consistent structure to the, the cells in the lining of the small intestine. And that's that's what's important. Exactly. It's, it's structural patterns. It's not just one thing that's being recognized. It's actually multiple things uh, that are being recognized. Those are the patterns that are being recognized by the cells in the small intestine. Okay. So you um, eventually, you, you start with a platform, like all platform companies, but eventually you got to have products that come off uh, out the other end that, that get tested and, you know, a clear indication. Uh, 1815 uh, is your your lead candidate. Um, what's uh, what's the theory with uh, with this one? What what good do you think it can do? So uh, 1815 is a specific strain of a class of bacteria called Prevotella histocola, and what we've shown clinically and preclinically is striking data uh, in which we resolve inflammation through acting on multiple pro-inflammatory cytokine pathways. So uh, most existing anti-inflammatories hit one pathway and they're quite blunt instruments, whether one's looking at an antibody uh, or a small molecule. But we're actually driving inflammation resolution and pushing the body back to a homeostatic state um, through impacting multiple different pathways. So it's a much uh, gentler approach to resolving inflammation. What makes it very exciting is that we've recently shown that we do not impact type 1 interferon response. So technical point, Luke, uh, you will probably appreciate it, but just to, to simplify it, so type 1 interferons are needed to generate antiviral immunity. So the beauty of 1815 is that we're resolving inflammation without shutting down immunity. Most potent anti-inflammatory agents 
completely shut down uh, host immune system uh, responses. That happens to be incredibly relevant for COVID-19, which we can talk about more in a moment. Uh, but we have something that's resolving inflammation through pushing the body back to a homeostatic state. It's not shutting down immunity. Yeah, I've heard some recent publications on the type 1 interferons being pretty important uh, in, in COVID, or we're, we're beginning to see that. Um, but now, 1815, you, you originally uh, tested this for psoriasis. Is that right? And, and you were thinking that uh, mechanistically it was dialing down the inflammatory response of some specific cytokines being IL-6, IL-8, TNF, and IL-1-beta, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Those are uh, some of the cytokines where we've shown where, we're, as you said, dialing down uh, the cytokine response, and that's leading to inflammation resolution. Um, we started in psoriasis because there's a huge unmet need in that space for patients with what is termed uh, actually inappropriately moderate disease. So uh, patients with uh, psoriasis have different levels of their body surface area covered with psoriatic lesions. Um, if you have 10 to 15% or less of your body covered with lesions, you're considered moderate uh, or mild uh, as a psoriatic patient. But those lesions can be very, very severe. They often present in important parts of the body, whether it's your face, your elbows, your genitalia. And so they have significant negative impact on lifestyle. Right now, those patients don't have any meaningful effective therapies in general available to them. Antibodies, JAK inhibitors aren't used for those, those types of patients. Um, because of the limitations of, of those types of products, they're injected, they're very expensive, they have side effects uh, associated with them. Um, so huge unmet need for patients with moderate psoriasis, but moderate inflammation as a general field, um, which represents something that impacts tens of millions of patients globally. There are no effective, safe, and affordable drugs for that population. So psoriasis also represented a rapid path to proof of principle. Uh, we've generated uh, exciting and encouraging data in a series of uh, human clinical studies uh, in psoriasis as well as a human experimental model. Um, and beyond psoriasis, if we see the positive results, it has lots of application in other inflammatory conditions. Uh, obviously, with the rise of COVID and in recognition of the fact that patients progress to serious COVID-19 because of hyperinflammation, an overactive immune response to the virus. Uh, we've taken 1815 into a series of clinical studies uh, looking at COVID-19 treatment. So this has a pretty interesting therapeutic profile. It's, um, it's working on multiple inflammatory cytokines. It's orally available. It's cheap. Works in the, the small intestine um, and can be used in earlier stage psoriasis patients. So that's a very different profile than those ones you mentioned, the antibodies and the JAK inhibitors. Um, but then COVID comes along. And one of the very early observations was that um, some of the, the most severely ill patients are, are having cytokine storms. And so like immediately people thought, um, okay, we actually know how to treat cytokine storms from uh, the early CAR-T experience. You, you give people an IL-6 inhibitor off the shelf, Actemra, or, or there's another one from uh, Regeneron. They've been tried, varying degrees of success. Picking the right patient population seems to be really important. But you, you saw this same thing and said, oh, geez, I mean, we've got something that tamps down IL-6 and plus other key mediators in cytokine storm. We might actually have something useful to contribute here. Can you, can you walk us through like that thought process? So a few key things. So one, yes, inflammation, clearly key to the progression of, uh, of COVID-19 and um, that hyper-inflammatory response is a central driver of patients progressing to the intensive care unit and uh, sadly towards mortality and, and death in some situations. So the ability to treat that hyper-inflammatory response was clearly critical. However, uh, really important, ideally, that the natural immune response to the virus remained intact. And because of the profile we have in which we are modulating the cytokine pathways you described, several of them, but we're driving the immune system to inflammation resolution, not shutting down host immunity, we thought we had something very unusual that uh, could be used consistent with our general hypothesis very broadly 
across all stages of, of COVID-19. So the biology in which we call it the Goldilocks effect, Luke, so we, we're essentially getting to just the right tipping point where there's no disease causing hyperinflammation, but there is an active antiviral immune response. Uh, and that's pretty unique biological profile, very, very well suited to COVID-19. Also, this is obviously a global issue. Um, we have the advantage of having something that's oral, not injected. Uh, it's also room temperature stable, we believe. Um, very important as you think about global markets. As you said, we've always had a goal of having something very affordable, and it appears to be remarkably safe and well-tolerated based on the studies we've conducted in, in psoriasis and human experimental models to date. Uh, so that's a great profile, not just for treating late-stage COVID, but all stages. So one of the things we're very excited about is the ability to go into the broad community. So I had COVID-19, as I think you know, Luke, uh, so did my wife. Um, I would have loved to have been able to take a tablet or a capsule the moment I had suspected COVID-19 um, to prevent progression to serious COVID-19. Again, healthcare is dependent upon early intervention or prevention. Um, that's the most important thing we can do to improve global healthcare, not treat late stage disease. They're not mutually exclusive. Obviously, we need to do that as well. Just a quick small point on this uh, Goldilocks effect that you were referring to. Like corticosteroids, we've seen dexamethasone from the UK recovery trial appears to be pretty effective in the uh, most severely ill hospitalized patients when you just need to slam down that hyper-effective or that, that hyperactive immune response. But you don't want to give it to people too early because that's when you actually need your immune response to, to be intact to, you know, ward off the virus. Um, so, and, and so what you're saying is, 1815 could be given early because it allows that that type one interferon response to, to remain intact. Yeah, absolutely. You've got a very good understanding. So that dexamethasone study, by the way, congrats to the UK government for having funded a great platform study there. Uh, so dexamethasone from that UK government platform study has been shown to improve mortality in late stage COVID patients by somewhere between 25 to 30%. So that is great. Uh, two points. One, 25 to 30% is not 100%. Um, and two, it does not appear to have any effect if you treat patients before they go onto the ventilator, before they go into intensive care. Right, right, right. This is where you think you can intervene uh, across the, um, the, the spectrum of patients. We think we can improve late stage as well as being used earlier stage. Okay. And you had, at the time COVID breaks out, there's, you already had data from your phase two psoriasis with more than 100 patients. Yeah, it's, it's technically a phase 1B. We had data in psoriasis patients where we showed the impact on the cytokines and inflammation resolution, as well as showing clinical improvement in, in psoriatic lesions. So we knew that in humans, we were driving the relevant effects. We also have data from a human experimental model of inflammation, uh, where, again, we'd shown uh, that we were driving the relevant effects. So you went to your clinical partners and said, okay, I mean, we've got a rationale here uh, for, for a COVID study. Um, let's get to work. Exactly. Yeah. And so we now have two studies ongoing. Uh, one is with essentially Addenbrooke's Hospital in the UK, so part of the NHS and the UK government, um, who are conducting a platform study called Tactic-E, and it's a phase two, three study um, looking at different novel agents that can go beyond what existing therapies can deliver in terms of helping COVID-19 patients. So we're one of the two initial key arms. And that study is set up to potentially allow for rapid registration. So there's about 450 patients per arm. Uh, it's underway right now in the UK. We're expanding the study internationally as we speak. And we expect we'll have data from that um, end of this year, beginning of next year. Um, and uh, obviously, we are waiting with bated breath to see if we're driving the effects we hope to see. Uh, there's a U.S. phase two study underway as well. Um, are you putting some things in place to plan for success for this? I mean, sort of like the vaccine manufacturers, like, you know, uh, ma uh, manufacturing in place for potential like quick global scale. We are doing exactly that. And uh, as uh, as you know, Luke, I'm in Europe right now. And the reason I'm in Europe is our, our key manufacturing partners are in Italy and France. And the, the challenge with microbes as drugs 
from a manufacturing perspective is around capacity. So there's very little large scale capacity in the world for manufacturing microbes as drugs. Uh, we put in place very early on partnerships with some of the few companies in the world who have some capacity. Um, we're working with them live right now to expand that capacity in anticipation of uh, success. And we already have uh, a path forward and plans in place which would give us an ability to deliver therapy for 10 to 20 million patients from early next year. Um, we are working through how we can scale that by a factor of 10. So obviously, uh, it is quite possible that hundreds of millions of patients will need our therapy. We're not at that scale yet, Luke, but we are already in place to be able to deliver product for about 20 million patients from early next year. And we're working through how we can scale that by a factor of 10 so, uh, so that we have the ability to deliver to hundreds of millions of patients if needed. Well, I know it's still early and you're, you're a long way from reaching the market, but what do you think these drugs might cost someday? So uh, we're not, we're not, uh, you know, as a public company, Luke, I have to sort of follow guidance. So I, I can't give you specifics. What it, what I will say is I think it's absolutely critically important. And COVID is just an example of a, of a fundamental point we believe in, that drugs are delivered on an affordable basis for global populations. And um, could not be more true for COVID-19. Uh, so, you know, what that translates to, I won't give you specific guidance. I will say that it cannot possibly be tens of thousands of dollars uh, per patient, uh, which is where most biotech products are priced today. It has to be a, a much, much lower number than that. Um, you know, I always like to ask people, I won't answer it for you, Luke, but what is the average uh, salary for a human being on the planet today is a number I always like to think of. And by definition, one needs to be able to develop drugs within that bandwidth. It's a, it's a really important point. I remember talking with you about this on the trail and on Kilimanjaro, um, this, uh, this tension between the pharmaceutical industry's um, uh, two constituencies, the, number one being shareholders and the other being patients. And, and that needs to be reconciled. Uh, it's, it's a hard thing. Uh, how do you think about, I mean, you've kind of alluded to this, and I think maybe growing up, uh, being born in Tanzania and traveling around the world has has informed your thinking on this. Yeah, no, absolutely, Luke. It's something that I'm, I'm passionate about, as you know. So, uh, so it begins with actually thinking about humanity from a global perspective versus a local or U.S. or or European centric uh, perspective. So, we're about eight billion people on the planet. We're soon going to be ten billion. Almost all of them are in the majority world. So, you know, we have to recognize that U.S. Uh, is the minority world. It represents actually a quite small fraction of the global population. People worldwide suffer from disease. And uh, I think it is absolutely imperative that we, as an industry, uh, think about that as a starting point. Uh, all human beings matter, whether or not you're American or European. Your life and your health matters. Um, I uh, I'm very contrarian in my view on this, Luke. I do not accept uh, standard rhetoric that innovation cannot happen unless we support extremely high pricing for drugs. I think it's a circular argument. Uh, humankind is incredibly creative and is able to do uh, impossible things. That's what we have done throughout uh, humanity's history. So, uh, that's one point. I, I think we need to personally get away from the rhetoric which says innovation cannot happen without expensive drugs. Um, I don't accept that hypothesis at all. Part of the reason I don't accept it is because we need to think about volume as opposed to price. Uh, if you extend my point about there being 10 billion people on the planet, um, if you just keep going, uh, somewhere around 30 to 50 percent of those will develop or have already developed metabolic or cardiovascular or immunological conditions. Um, so if you just take that number, Luke, there's three to five billion patients for chronic diseases um, at the outset. Um, think of any price you want, that it becomes one of the most enormous markets on the planet at even a low price. Um, and so I think we need to think about volume as opposed to price uh, as an industry. Um, and think about how we help 10 billion people and how we help, again, across all stages of disease. Uh, and I'm very, very confident we will find a way to make that economically uh, supportable. 
Um, and then I'm big on the other side of Adam Smith, Luke. So everybody knows Wealth of Nations and, you know, Wall Street, the movie was based upon that and the principle that greed is good. But Adam Smith actually wrote another book on the theory of moral sentiments. And the point is that man, humans are simultaneously selfish and altruistic. And I think we can tap into the altruistic side. That's probably a genetic driver, by the way, back to the selfish gene. Um, but uh, the world has moved very much to a one-sided view of capitalism. Adam Smith, who was arguably the founder of capitalism, believed that the altruistic side was a really, really important point of building functional societies. And we've lost the way completely, in my view. Uh, so, yes, I feel very strongly about the fact that the world and our industry needs to redefine itself. You know, just hearing you say that and, you know, bring up volume and, and price, um, <laughs> you know, it reminds me of an example from another industry, retailing, right? I mean, there's, there, there's, you can make money if you're Neiman Marcus, you know, small volume of goods at, you know, high profit margins, or you can make money as Amazon or Walmart, you know, a, a lot of volume on lower priced items. And uh, either both of them are perfectly viable businesses that fit in your Adam Smith uh, example. Um, but the pharmaceutical industry hasn't really opted for the, the Amazon, Walmart, Costco, you know, lower price, high volume model. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you phrase it well. So both, both should exist. So, you know, to be clear, I am a massive fan of what uh, many aspects of biotech have done. And it's remarkable what's happened in gene therapy, cell therapy, antibodies, et cetera. Uh, not mutually exclusive to a different model, right? And, and you're right, uh, fashion is a great place to look. So, uh, you know, the, the founder and owner of Zara is one of the world's wealthiest people. Um, he's not selling expensive fashion goods. He's selling high volume uh, fashion. Um, that exists in the same world as Louis Vuitton and, and other luxury good companies. There's room for both. Monoclonal microbials, uh, small molecules uh, at, you know, effective low prices. I mean, there are lots of ways to get these around the world to people who need them. Um, best of luck, Simba. Thank you today for joining me on the Long Run Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode. <laughs>